Just over 55 years ago this month, one of the most underreported tragedies in American history took place at a bowling alley in South Carolina. We want to shine a light on a horrific event that you might not even know about, but you should. The Orangeburg Massacre. South Carolina State University campus, the site of the 1968 Orangeburg Massacre, one of the most violent, least remembered events of the civil rights movement. In 1968, in the tiny city of Orangeburg, home of South Carolina State, police opened fire on a group of black protesters who were rallying against the bowling alley's owner, a man who refused to let in black patrons, like this man, Cleveland Sellers. I had spent my life growing up in Orangeburg and around Orangeburg. My birth home is seven miles from the border of Orangeburg County. Cleveland Sellers is now 78 years old, and he was one of the protesters that evening at the bowling alley. You hear one officer fire, and then you hear all the rest of them. And when I started to move back, I got hit. 80% of the students were shot in the back, in the butt. So they were never charging the the officers like the law enforcement and the governor has led everybody to believe. The massacre also changed the course of sports in South Carolina forever. Those killed two South Carolina state athletes, Henry Smith and Samuel Hammond Jr. And 17-year-old high school student Delano Middleton. And now, 55 years later, even those who survived that night, survivors like Cleveland Sellers, they're still searching for answers. Until the truth has been told, they will never be able to say that race relations in South Carolina is near perfect. So that's going to be one of the contradictions. So today, we ask David Dennis Jr., author of the book The Movement Made Us, a father, a son, and the legacy of a freedom ride, to report a story that all these years later still needs to be told. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Friday, February 24th. And this is ESPN Daily. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. David Dennis Jr., senior writer at Anscape. Thank you for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Thank you. 
So David, what I need you to do here for me as your friend at the top is just refresh our memories here. Take us back to 1968. What is the climate of athlete activism during that specific time? I mean, America was on fire. I mean, it was on fire, not in the good way that we talk about sports, <laughs> you know, when somebody's on fire. We're talking about literal riots. 68 was, in terms of the civil rights movement, there was a lot of disenchantment with the traditional ways of the movement, the nonviolence. And there becomes more of a turn to more black radicalism, trying to do things a little bit different. And this, of course, permeates in, in the athlete world also. We have the Cleveland Summit a few months earlier. June 4th, 1967, Bill Russell sat next to Muhammad Ali at a press conference in Cleveland, Ohio. Bill and 11 other premier athletes showed the world the power of their unity, solidarity, and status. We have, obviously, Muhammad Ali, there's Bill Russell, there's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, there are these athletes at the forefront of this change. Black people, you notice, didn't vote for no presidents all of this year because every four years, it's a new trick, a new phony, fake image, and they have given up today. They want to do it themselves. As we've seen throughout the country, whenever these movements get more aggressive and get more assertive, the country fights back just as hard. Mm. In April 1968, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King is assassinated. And there is more of a militaristic approach to the way that Black folks are treating injustice in this country. The tensions are at an extreme boiling point right at 1968. And in the South in particular, that climate, I want to be blunt about what was happening there in specific. The 60s had been hell for Black folks in the South, obviously b before then, but especially in the 60s. You know, on, on personally, 68, my dad essentially left the civil rights movement. I mean, they'd mm. been sort of on the on the trenches, in the trenches for seven years, and a lot of his friends had been killed in the process. And so what had always sort of happened in the South is as there were these uh, civil rights acts and these changes to civil rights acts and these demands for desegregation of businesses and and schools and things like that, there were places in the South that just refused to do it. Now, it's important to remember here that these acts, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, were there to enforce desegregation upon a populace that, as you alluded to now, uh, was not exactly excited about doing so. Yeah, I mean, this was law. This was something that you had to do by law. But the question, especially when you're in the South, you're in these Southern cities, who's going to enforce it? Mm. And what you would see is people trying to test these laws, right? By having sit-ins, by going into bus terminals, by going to different places to try to make sure that they were complying with these civil rights acts. And oftentimes they were not. And oftentimes were they not only not complying, they were violent towards the people who were going in and trying to do the desegregating. So this is the backdrop for Orangeburg. South Carolina, and this establishment, David, that is known as the All-Star Bowling Lane. Tell us why a bowling alley at the beginning of 1968 is this central place in this story. Tell us what was going on there. There were two HBCUs right there in, in Orangeburg. So there's South Carolina State College, there's Claflin College. And what a lot of folks don't necessarily understand is that bowling alleys, especially for young Black folks at the time, and I mean, even now, you know, you go to college and you're looking for a place to hang out 
And the bowling alley is one of those essential places. And that was especially true in Orangeburg. Mm. And so what these students found out was that the owner, Harry Floyd, had no interest in integrating this bowling alley. So black students saw this as a chance to test out the enforcement of these, these acts. We talk about the sit-ins. We talk about this history of these protests, these businesses. A lot of times, these are HBCU students who are initiating these protests. This is no different. And so what we did, we spoke to a man named Thomas Kennerly, who's 76 years old right now, and he was actually at that protest. Students had expressed some concerns about the All-Star Lanes as far as it being a private facility and them not being allowed to bowl. The... Uh, Owner, the proprietor there, Harry Floyd, would certainly turn them away because his indication was that it's just private property. And so, in essence, what he was saying was, you're not welcome. And so there is this standoff between Harry Floyd, the owner of the bowling alley, and this gathering group of students. This is now February 5th, 1968. What is happening on this day? Students from the two HBCUs organized a sit-in at the bowling alley. And as we talk about these athlete activists, we have to talk about the fact that the protest was mostly led by members of the South Carolina State football team. Mm. And we spoke to Willis Ham, who's a defensive back for the South Carolina State football team, and he talked about what happened in those early protests. They engaged uh, Mr. Floyd, who told them that they needed to go away. The only baseball player that was white on the campus, named John Blucher, went into bowl. He bowls three frames or so. The black students came in, and Mr. Floyd told them they would have to leave out. He said then, members only. So John indicated to him that uh, I'm not a member. I just happen to be white, and you've allowed me to bowl. What ensued at that point was the fire department, the police department showed up, sprayed the students with water and what have you. It turned into a little Donnybrook where... Not only were male students uh, struck with batons and pushed to the ground and stomped, but so were female students. This takes us in to now the day in question, the day that we're focusing on here, February 8th, 1968. This day unfolds how? The students are initiating sort of demonstrations, protests on campus. They're lighting bonfires. They're singing freedom songs. Soon, Firemen come to sort of douse the bonfires and supposedly calm everything down. But they are backed by these state troopers, right? Mm. All these state troopers are white, little crowd control training at all, and tensions start to flare. Something gets thrown at a police officer. Some thought it was gunfire about 70 law enforcement officers, they, they line the campus. They're armed with short barrel shotguns that are supposed to disperse a crowd. They're not supposed to cause any injury. But these shotguns in particular are loaded with lethal buckshots. Buckshot, that's like a hunting thing. Yeah, it's, it's what hunters use to kill deer. Mm. Each shell contained 9 to 12 pellets the size of a 32 caliber pistol slug. So these things are... are built to do damage the way that they have calibrated them. Shortly after dark, the troops came out in force. They surrounded the college area, blocked the streets, and brought in armored personnel carriers for additional support. About 600 South Carolina National Guardsmen and 400 state troopers were involved in the security operation. 
Willis Ham again, gave us some real perspective on how much law enforcement was involved. The students were in a face-off with local police, state police, and then eventually the National Guard. The National Guardsmen were the ones that positioned themselves very neatly on the embankment and rested their rifles as if they were at the rifle range practicing. So I'm imagining this scene now, David, and this is, it's, it's explosive. The force of the government is now present and felt and threatening. And you spoke to a protester named Thomas Kennerly. What did he remember seeing? So he was on campus. He saw the smoke from the bonfire near the bowling alley. And actually, he was just kind of hanging out. He saw the smoke and went to go and, and check it out. What I remember is when I got to the front of the campus where the bonfire was, and it was roaring pretty good at that time, but it seemed like almost at a moment's notice the shooting started and it might have lasted 10 seconds. I hit the ground, started crawling back towards the interior of the campus, and I certainly noticed that some other kid students around me had fallen, claimed that they were hit, Billy really, kind of felt like we were in a war zone. Even though, as I said, it might have been nine, ten seconds that the shooting took place, it was just so sudden and sporadic and so unnecessary and shocking that I think we all were kind of dumbfounded. I didn't realize at that time that I'd been hit. Kennedy was shot three times. It was a war zone in Orangeburg, South Carolina, but one side was just a bunch of students trying to flee for their lives. And so in total, how many protesters were shot by law enforcement? So a total of 31 students were shot. And it's important to note that just about all of them, most of them shot in the back, shot in the bottoms of their feet, shot in their sides to indicate that they were fleeing the scene when they, they were shot. So 31 were shot, 28 of those students were wounded, three students were killed. And so what do we know, David, about those three students who were killed? Well, all three of them were athletes. Samuel Hammond Jr., 18-year-old football player, South Carolina State. Henry Smith, 19-year-old, also played football at South Carolina State. And Smith in particular was a well-known activist on campus, beloved by pretty much everybody who talked about him. But it was Delano Middleton, 17-year-old high school football and baseball star. His story just sticks with me. He was sitting on a stoop 600 feet away from the incident, waiting for his mother to get off of her shift at work so he could walk her home. Mm. And he's struck by a stray bullet and killed. All three of these people were kids. They were teenagers. They lost their lives senselessly. It's a, it's a terrible tragedy. We'll be right back. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. 
shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. So, David, the immediate fallout of this shooting, of this tragedy, as you've now chronicled it for us, what was the aftermath like back on campus? Well, a lot of the students, right after the shooting, mad dash to the hospital, trying to get treated. Their parents had heard what had happened. They're trying to find their kids. It's just chaos. The next day, police tell the students that there is a 7 p.m. Curfews, they have to leave campus by 7 p.m. or else they get arrested. So people are trying to figure out how to get off of campus so they don't end up in jail or worse. So these students are told to evacuate their campus, not like go inside, but get off of the grounds entirely. And so that seems pretty difficult. Did any students get arrested as a result? Yeah, so the student that you heard at the top of the episode, that's Cleveland Sellers. Yes. And he has a, a... a fascinating story. Grew up in South Carolina. He was a 15-year-old who was initiating sit-ins and protests. He goes to join SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, which is one of the central organizing groups in the civil rights movement. He's part of the Freedom Summer 1964. He comes back to South Carolina to continue his education, and he's part of the organizing efforts to desegregate the bowling alley. He gets shot. And through all this chaos, he is the only person that gets arrested. Wait, so Cleveland Sellers, the guy we heard from at the very top of the show, how does he wind up being the only guy to get arrested in this? So when he gets shot, he goes to the hospital to get his wound treated. And while he's at the hospital, he gets identified and they arrest him. I stayed in in the waiting room for maybe about 10 or 15 minutes. And then they called in the black sheriff deputies and they recognized me and they went in and they told the sheriff that I was in there. They told the the doctors and all that they go ahead and treat whatever it was I had, speed it up, and they were going to take me out of there. Cleveland Sellers becomes the scapegoat for the police, the government. In fact, the governor of South Carolina at the time, Robert McNair, refers to Sellers by name in a press conference. I think all of you know that Cleveland Sellers, who has been the leader in this movement, uh, was one of those who was wounded last evening and uh, is now uh, in the custody and uh, charged with inciting a riot and participating in the burning. And so this is how the government of South Carolina is framing this story. And that framework does get national attention. I mean, this is the sort of story at the time where the federal government winds up stepping in and investigating what exactly happened in Orangeburg. 
And what does the federal government end up finding? So they bring charges against nine state patrolmen. Uh, it's the first federal trial of police officers for using excessive force uh, at a campus protest. Mm. The patrolmen's defense was that they felt they were in danger, that the protesters had shot at the officers. However, there were 36 witnesses that said they did not hear any gunfire from the protesters. No students were found to be carrying any guns. They couldn't find any guns anywhere on campus. And still, all nine defendants were acquitted. Man. And so none of the officers, none of the nine state patrolmen are held accountable for what happens in Orangeburg. Those three dead students, those 28 wounded. And in all of this, what happens to Cleveland Sellers, the only student who had been arrested? So there was a state trial and Cleveland Sellers was sentenced to seven months in prison and eventually released on good behavior. He was pardoned 25 years later by South Carolina Governor Carol Campbell. Mm. But I, I got to reiterate, 31 people were shot, and the only person who served any jail time is one of the victims. Right. I mean, David, it is hard now not to think about the fact that there was another far, far better-known shooting two years after the Orangeburg Massacre that happened in America. And I'm assuming that most of the people listening to us talk about any of this. They have heard of the Kent State Massacre. That is, of course, where four students died, where nine were injured in a protest against the Vietnam War on the campus of Kent State. And, you know, a big reason why that's well-known is because we have made it so. It has been canonized in the way that our country teaches American history. But everything you just told me about what happened and did not happen in the end in Orangeburg, how would you say that that story has been remembered by comparison? Yeah, I mean, it hasn't been remembered. In working on this story and bringing it up in conversation, hardly anybody I, I, I talked to knew anything about it. I mean, this is a story that has been buried in American history. It's one of the most violent days in the civil rights movement. Um, a terribly violent day in American history, and we just don't get taught about it. South Carolina State, at least, the campus, what have they done to memorialize those victims, those students, this entire event? Just this year, they created a monument that features busts of the three kids, uh, Middleton, Smith, and, and Hammond, and they've named their basketball arena the Smith-Hammond-Middleton Memorial Center. Mm. Um, they host memorials and events there to commemorate every year, they're doing their part to try to make sure that as many people as possible know about this story. What I want to know is how we should remember the Orangeburg Massacre, like the rest of us, the country at large. What's the actual legacy, as you understand it now, having reported this, of a story like this one? Well, I asked this to Cleveland Sellers, and it's his belief that the legacy of the Orangeburg Massacre is the failure to properly investigate it. Well, I think the legacy of the Orangeburg Massacre is if somebody would have done the, the proper investigation, we could have avoided Kent State and we could have avoided a lot of other tragedies that were perpetuated by us letting the police kind of run amok. How do you have a squad like that, a riot squad like that, and they're trigger happy? You don't value human beings, human lives. It is hard not to draw a through line from the 1968 Orangeburg Massacre to any number of things in the news 
in 2023, especially when we talk about police violence. Why do we talk about Kent State and not the Orangeburg Massacre? Well, uh, the answer can simply just be that this is something that happened to Black people and that as a country, we have not reckoned with the violence that we inflict on Black folks. And it's a reason that we have Tyree Nichols happening in 2023. This is a story about police violence, about Black victims, and about what this country does not do to deal with this terror that is inflicted on a large populace in this country. David Dennis Jr., thank you for telling us this story. Thank you for having me. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Nantel, Mike Philbrick, Andre Soto, Andy Tennant, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Deontay Epps, Kendall Majette, Brad Farmer, Devin Ashby, and Jackson Angelo. We'll talk to you Monday.